thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And as promised at the end of last week's episode, today we're going to dive into this mysterious, murky doctrine of stare decisis that uh, becomes so important, particularly to liberals, when justices are nominated for the United States Supreme Court. And we have to understand how this doctrine is used to understand just how arbitrary the United States Supreme Court is. And of course, when the highest court in the land is arbitrary in regard to its judgments and interpretations of the law, then that is a form of tyranny. Arbitrary law is a badge of tyrannical activity. So, Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about in in terms of the political importance of stare decisis. A few years ago, when President Trump nominated Judge Neil Gorsuch to the court, just just two days after the announcement, uh, NPR drew attention to the doctrine of stare decisis in a lengthy interview with Senator Richard Blumenthal, who, of course, is now a prominent figure in the United States Senate with the Senate Judiciary Committee. And he defined what is a, quote, mainstream jurist, meaning, in other words, somebody that's confirmable, in his opinion. If you're not mainstream, you're not confirmable. And, and here's what he said, and I quote, Star decisis, it really goes to the root of a judge's philosophy, sitting on a bench, deciding cases, whether he or she respects well-established precedent. There's a doctrine called stare decisis. Without going into all the legal gobbledygook, what it means essentially is that judges respect past opinions and rulings that established settled law. Well, today we're going to go into some of that gobbledygook, and I hope from just what you've learned in the recent episodes, you realize the gobbledygook of his statement that past opinions and rulings create established, settled law. I mean, the first problem that Senator Blumenthal has, who's a lawyer and I think now chair of the Judiciary Committee, is that rulings and opinions of the court are not law. They're judgments deciding a particular case or controversy between particular parties. We talked about the case or controversy requirement in Article 3 a few weeks ago. Second, think about his statement, rulings that that show established, settled law. Well, he begs the question, when is some law settled? When is it so settled that it's established? As I said in the last episode, separate but equal was on the books for 70 years when the court reversed that idea in Brown versus Board of Education. I mean, is a law not settled after even 70 years? Apparently not, because they reversed Plessy versus Ferguson and his doctrine of separate but equal. So apparently established law takes longer than 70 years. But if that's the case, then 
Well, Roe versus Wade sure wouldn't be settled law as that was only decided 48 years ago. And, and actually, if you remember, I mentioned that the court said that same-sex marriage wasn't even a federal issue that federal courts could hear. That was in 1972. And uh, then we turn around 43 years later in 2015 and say, no, it is a federal question. So I, it's just hard for me to know. I, I, I just don't have the correct divining rod, I guess, to know when something's settled or not. Um, you know, 70 years is apparently not settled. 48 years with Roe is settled, and I presume uh, from 72 to 2015, that, that period of time, 43 years, was, was not settled. But I bet if you went to Senator Blumenthal, he would say that the Obergefell decision on same-sex marriage in 2015 is settled law. Are you starting to get the sense that this doctrine of stare decisis is rather arbitrary in its application? But in any event, uh, I digress, and, and let's return to this question of what is stare decisis? What is the gobbledygook of this doctrine? Well, it is a phrase that abbreviates an ancient maxim that translated from the Latin means to stand by decisions and not to disturb settled matters. Now, that sounds great, but that statement has to be understood in the context in which it was made. Now, Again, as I told you last week, stare decisis is not in the Constitution. Write that down, double underline. It's a judicial doctrine, meaning that the judicial branch created it as an aid to its decision-making, but it's not something in the Constitution. In fact, it's not even a logically required inference from any text in the Constitution. And what I mean by that is, like the freedom of speech, the logical inference would be that it applies to human beings and not to animals. But there's nothing in the Constitution from which one could draw a logical inference that stare decisis is required. Now, what we have to get is an understanding of why the doctrine developed. And once we know why the doctrine was developed, we can compare the cause for its origination to its relevance and application to the United States Constitution and the interpretation of the Constitution. So you can have things that have a historical root, and when you try to apply them outside the context of the historical grounding for something, it, it just doesn't work. It, it, doesn't fit, it doesn't apply. And I think that's eventually what you'll come to see. And that's why we uh, have stare decisis being such an arbitrary thing by the Supreme Court. Now, let's look at its origin. It developed at common law. And, and from this, I'm, I'm drawing from an article by a law professor, friend of mine, that you can find on the internet if you went to um, the website for public discourse you would find an article by Robert L. McFarland, M-little-c-f-a-r-l-a-n-d. It's from March 16th of 2017, and its title is Stare Decisis for Me, But Not for Thee. Uh, again, pointing to the arbitrariness with which the doctrine of stare decisis is applied and administered by the courts. So stare decisis arose out of the common law, as did as you've heard in previous episodes, our whole Constitution. You know, the court routinely 
refers to the common law and to Blackstone's commentaries to interpret the words and phrases in the Constitution. And what stare decisis was doing is it was saying that judges should respect the decisions of the past. Okay, now that sounds like, well, why wouldn't the Supreme Court accept the decisions of the past? Well, here's the primary reason. Common law, as you'll recall, is not enacted law. It's not statutorily created. And so what judges were doing is they were looking at the facts of particular situations that were brought before them and looking at revelation, looking at history, looking at tradition, looking at natural law principles to distill what the right judgment should be between two particular parties. And then explaining how they arrived at that judgment. So in a sense, the judges were creating law. Now, they really weren't. I use that term very loosely. What they were actually doing is setting forth what they thought the law was. Blackstone would have said the opinion of a judge is evidence of what the law is, but the judge could be wrong. And thus, when a decision was reversed, they weren't changing the law as much as they were saying we got the law wrong the first time and now we're getting the law right. And they would explain why the old law or the old decision was wrong and why the new decision was the better decision. So I've, I've given an example in my book, Restoring the Constitution or Recovering the Constitution. I can't remember the name of my own book, uh, where I talk about dine and dash. The, you know, people go into a restaurant, they eat, and then boom, they, they, they get out of the restaurant before they pay. And everybody knows that that's wrong. We don't need a statute to say you can't come in, uh, order a meal, the person takes uh, your offer to pay for the meal, provides the meal, you eat it, and then you don't complete the transaction. You run off without paying. The common law would have said, oh, wait, 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 wait a minute, that, that's wrong. You can't do that. And so the judge would issue an opinion saying why that would be wrong and then uh, would enter a judgment requiring the dashing diner to pay for the meal. So that's how sort of the common law worked. And so when the judges operating under the common law put forth an opinion explaining the law, it was said that it should be given a sense of respect, that we should look at it to make sure that before we change what the opinion was, we, we, we know why the old one was wrong and why the new one is better. But the concept of stare decisis is not a bright line mandate that requires adherence to a prior opinion by a judge. It's, it's just not conclusive that the judge in the past was right simply because he wrote an opinion explaining why he thought he was right. There may be a presumption of deference to a precedent, but it's rebuttable in, in multiple ways by showing why the judge in the past was not right or overlooked an exception to the rule that he established or to the differences in facts that would require a different outcome. So, William Blackstone, 
again, the great historian of the common law to whom I've referred multiple times, he described stare decisis in his commentaries as follows, and here I'm quoting. Precedents and rules must be followed unless, so there are exceptions, flatly absurd or unjust, for though their reason be not obvious at first, Yet we owe such a deference to former times as not to suppose that they acted wholly without consideration. In other words, we're not going to assume that everybody in the past was stupid. We're going to give a deference to, to presume that they actually thought through this thing pretty well. But we're still entitled, Blackstone was saying, to, to realize that no, they didn't think it through very well, or things have changed such that we now understand why our thinking in that moment was wrong. Have you ever changed your mind and, and, and realized that what you thought had been the right thing maybe was not the right thing? Well, that's what Blackstone's talking about. So stare decisis reflected the common law's deference to history and tradition and to custom because the common law itself developed gradually on the basis of custom and tradition and history. And of course, history is always changing and, and, and moving along. This does not mean, however, that common law justices looked at law from an evolutionary worldview. They did not. Blackstone made it very clear that there are certain fundamental principles that undergird every decision, the first of which, as we've discussed in previous episodes, is that there is a God who has created and he's established a law that pertains to everything that he has created, and therefore man, being totally dependent upon his maker, must conform in all points to his maker's will. So, so law was not considered evolutionary, but facts might change. So think back to my example of the dashing diner. For example, uh, another diner comes into the same restaurant, realizes that things are very expensive in this restaurant, and he says, well, I can only afford to have soup. So uh, he orders soup and a glass of water. And the chef prepares and sends out to him a full five-course lobster dinner. Well, if the diner were to dash, if he were to say, I didn't order that, I didn't offer to pay for that, I'm not paying for it, and walks out, well, a, a judge would not, under those circumstances, say, well, the last time the person came in and ordered something and, and, and left without paying, and uh, the judge ordered him to pay, so I have to order him to pay in this instance. Somebody said, no, 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 you, you misunderstand the principle here. The principle in the first case was that there was an offer to pay for um, soup, for example, and uh, the restaurateur provided soup, and so we had to pay for the soup. But this is different factually. We now have people preparing meals that aren't ordered and trying to foist them on people. Uh, that's a change, and so therefore we need to have a different principle here that you, you, you can't do that as the seller of food, give something to somebody that they didn't order and then expect them to pay for it. So they'd say, okay, you, you don't have to pay. That's different from what we did in the past where we said you had to pay. Now, we could, we could further elaborate the point by saying the person goes in, realizes it's too expensive, orders soup and water. The chef provides a 
five course lobster dinner and uh, the, the diner says, oh, <laughs> you know, I remember uh, Fred back in the case from five years ago, he didn't have to pay for that lobster dinner. So he eats the lobster dinner and then dashes out without paying. Well, the judge in that case wouldn't say, oh, well, because the previous diner when ordering soup and getting a lobster meal didn't pay for it, I guess you don't have to pay for it. They say, well, no, 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 wait a minute. You actually could have left, but you chose to eat the meal. And now you can't escape paying for the meal. So do you see how precedent would work in that kind of situation and how the law would develop? So what we read today, though, is something different. We have people like Senator Blumenthal saying precedents must be followed. I mean, that's the mainstream kind of view. But all that view does is insulate cases like Roe versus Wade or Obergefell versus Hodges from scrutiny, from, from people going back and saying, well, let's think through the rationale of that case and decide if it was rightly decided. You see, they would have even done that at common law. Uh, they might have given deference to, to say we're not going to assume he got it wrong, but we can examine it and we can evaluate it. We can judge it based upon the facts of the particular instance uh, such as what I've just described. But liberals want judges to not reconsider any decision they like, no matter how wrong it is, and they hold up this doctrine of stare decisis as if it's some kind of mandate in the Constitution not to re-examine a decision regardless of how long it has been or not been on the books. They don't want the analysis in those decisions to be re-examined for their correctness, and so they throw up the shield of starry decisis. And as I said, that, that just flat out ignores what Blackstone said was the limits of the doctrine. You, you can't apply a previous decision that's flatly absurd or unjust, or as Blackstone said, contrary to reason, uh, or a judgment that's manifestly absurd, he said. Uh, judges would be required to reject at common law the prior precedent. But senators like Blumenthal don't want those prior precedents to be examined and re-examined and rejected. So even the foundational roots of the doctrine of stare decisis as it existed at common law does not mean that wrong decisions cannot be reversed. And we can't allow persons like Senator Blumenthal to fool us into thinking that the doctrine of stare decisis is somehow required by the Constitution and it prohibits prior decisions, no matter how old they are, from being reconsidered. Now, I'm going to end today's podcast right here. And next week, we're going to look at some comments from Justice Clarence Thomas about why the doctrine of stare decisis is particularly problematic when it comes to construing a constitution, when it's taken outside the context of the common law and the development of common law principles. And I suspect by the end of next week, you will be as disturbed by the actions of our United States Supreme Court 
and the obeisance paid to its rulings by state officials, as I am. And I'll look forward to sharing with you next week Judge Clarence Thomas's thoughts on Starry Decisis. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.